little bit of time of reckoning. Um, who did their renovate us this week? If you wrote your letter, hold it up. Yeah, all right. So what we need to do going forward is uh, renovate us. If you're not on Facebook, you're going to, you should get on Facebook. Um, <laughs> it makes it easier for me. Uh, we might need to work out a Twitter deal where you guys subscribe to that so we can send you messages. Um, we, we've been a little lax in our renovate us, uh, renovate us, asai, whatever the plurals, um, but they're back and uh, we put up two this week. Something I want you to do going forward every week is to read the chapter. I mean, that's typically something that we put in every other one, but what I want you to do, um, and Matt can give you further instructions or make you not do this, but at least this week and next week while I'm preaching, um, I want you to read the chapter. And just as you're reading, make notes on each verse. Uh, questions that you have, observations that you make, uh, anything that you see or you're intrigued by, maybe some correlations, maybe some repetition, uh, anything that you see like that, uh, just make some notes. You can, there's a template of what I did on chapter two online uh, in the Renovate Us. If you click on the title of that one, which it'll have instructions, you can download just a, a PDF of what that looks like. Use that kind of as a guide for going forward. But with that, I also wanted you to write a letter to your spouse, a love letter to your spouse. Um, that's going to play in at the end of the sermon. Um, but if you want to do that, you can get on there and, and do that anyways. Um, but make sure you guys are checking that. Typically, they're going to go up on Thursdays. Uh, that's usually about when we're over for Brian Hump Day. Um, where's my woohoo? Thank you. All right, when we're past hump day, we've typically done most of our study and are forming out most of our points. So we kind of have an idea of where we want you to go through the end of the week. Um, so make sure you're checking Renovate Us. Um, just so next week it can be the one person who holds up their paper and be like, I did it, and everybody else will feel bad. All right? Not good? Cool. <laughs> All right, let's, let's look at chapter 5. So what's interesting about chapter 5 is we have many more actions of Jesus. We've moved out of the early years, really, and are moving into the beginning of... Jesus's ministry he particularly starts in Galilee as we saw last week he's he starts there and then says that he has to leave so he must proclaim the good news in chapter 4 about the kingdom of God to the other towns also because I was sent for this purpose if you were looking for a mission statement from Jesus this is the purpose he is bringing about kingdom of God as we talked about in chapter 2 he is the new kingdom he is the new Adam he is the new temple he is the new creation and anytime that he comes into contact with somebody he is bringing about kingdom and that is what we need to strive to do is bring about kingdom and redeeming in the lives of those around us so as we move into chapter five i just want to start off um by we, we, one of our main goals is who is jesus right that, that was kind of the opening question in that video that we did that's the idea of what we're trying to figure out is who is jesus particularly as luke defines him now luke is incredibly detailed as we've seen before uh, and continues to be today uh, but when you look at the, his account versus, say, Matthew's or Mark's or even John's, he's a much different writer, particularly because he's a Gentile. And we have Luke writing here. He's writing as a Gentile, whereas the others were Jews. Well, Luke is writing, if you will, from an outsider's perspective, having gone and found eyewitness accounts of the people who were around Jesus during this time and reporting on those items. So if we're looking at who is Jesus, um, we have to combat what our misconceptions are of Jesus. Uh, one of the things that Matt wanted us to do in that video at the beginning was to set aside really the preconceptions and the notions that we have of who Jesus is and just take the Bible for what it says. 
We want to read so much into it that we miss what it is trying to say to us. Um, so we want to paint, you know, all these different titles on Jesus. And we try to, as he d- talked about last week, um, define the Messiah as what we want it to be. We're, instead of letting Jesus define himself as he wants to be. And so we find ourselves saying, who is Jesus? Who's the real Jesus of history? A lot of people will say that he's a revolutionary, and I think that they would be right. But the problem is, is we call a lot of different historical figures revolutionary. Napoleon, a revolutionary. Alexander the Great, revolutionary. Socrates in philosophy, revolutionary. Leonardo is a Renaissance man, revolutionary. We, I mean, we have revolutions and revolutionaries all the time in history. So what makes Jesus different? Was he just in that group of people? Yeah, he was a great human being, and, and he led this awesome revolution in Judaism that kind of got rid of Judaism, that kind of confused everybody, and now we, where are we at? You can't put him in that same company. There's a writer that said that Adam and Jesus, those are your only revolutionaries. Everybody else just came in and rearranged the furniture. If just different ways of presenting it, different ways of doing the same thing. Adam and Jesus, those are the only revolutionaries. So we have the old Adam and then the new Adam, and Jesus comes in the kingdom. We find ourselves with two ways of doing things. One way is man's way. It's Adam. Adam is the first revolutionary. He is the one who came and said, hey, this is what human nature looks like. Look at me. ate an apple. Good job. Then we have Jesus who comes along later, and he actually is a revolutionary, much more than any other historical figure that we have. And so as we look at Jesus, he had a new way of doing everything. If you're going to be revolutionary, it can't just be in one thing. An iPhone, when it came out, seemed like a revolution, and it is. But did it change everything? It changes a lot, but not everything. Jesus changes everything. He had new ways of dealing with everything. And so the first thing that we're going to look at is his new way of dealing with the world. Jesus had a new way of dealing with the world. If we look in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret, or uh, the Sea of Galilee, as we would call it. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. So what we encounter here is that Jesus was in Nazareth and then began to leave, as we saw at the end of chapter 4. He starts preaching in the synagogues of Galaxy. Now, as he was preaching in Galilee, he's moving and getting pressed towards the Sea of Galilee. And these crowds continue to come, continue to come. Now, what I want you to notice is first in chapter 4, verse 34, the last verse of the previous chapter, he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. All of that is plural. What you're going to find today in Luke is he's not typically speaking about a specific incident. Right? You can take these incidents and extrapolate them to many. Most of what he's talking about is, something, is a pattern of behavior. And I think that's really important for us to note first as we're looking at who Jesus is, as actions show character. So it's not just a, Jesus did this once. Jesus was this. Does that make sense? I mean, this is who he is. It's a pattern of behavior. It's a character of Jesus. So he was preaching continuously in the synagogue. That means multiple places of Galilee. And so as he's doing that, this crowd is pressing in on Jesus. You need to make sure that you separate these chapters. 
Those chapters were not there in Luke's account. Um, this is a continuing story. So he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee, and as the crowds were pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake, and what he did is he went out into one of them and said, hey, can you take me out a little bit? First of all, it'll keep the people from pressing on me because they're going to get wet. Second of all, we're going to form a natural amphitheater. If you come off of the shore just a little bit and you stand there, you have all of the wind, all of the noise coming behind you with the waves. It forms a natural amphitheater. So Jesus sits down in the boat and teaches. In those days, listening to a rabbi or a teacher was about the opposite of what we're doing right now. I would be sitting and you guys would be standing. Uh, it was to show respect for uh, the teacher. Um, I, I thank you for your respect for the teacher and your quietness and maybe the occasional amen. Uh, that would be awesome. Um, but we're kind of Baptist. So um, with that, he's sitting down. And you can't just think of like Simon pushing him out there and him going, because what would happen? He'd either drift in or out, right? And that would be bad. Jesus out there without a paddle. Um, Simon has to go out. This isn't written in here, but this is what had to happen. This is an inference. This isn't uh, guessing. This is what had to happen. Simon had to go out there and hold boat. He's standing in the water and he's holding the boat. Now, Jesus is like us. He's teaching for a while, right? So imagine having fished all night long, not gotten anything, as he says. And then they, they fished at night because it was easier to get the fish. So in the morning, they pack it up and go home. Then he has to go back out there and hold on to this boat in the waves, all those guys droning on and on for an hour. That will wear you out. And so he finally teaches. He sat down and taught from the boat. When he had finished, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. I know you're wet. I know you've been hanging on to this boat for a while. I appreciate that. I know you didn't get anything last night. I know your buddies are tired. You've already cleaned the nets. Cleaning the nets is one of the hardest parts of it. But let's go out deep water again and uh, put out your nets. Master, Simon replied. We don't know whether Simon was listening to Jesus or not. Regardless, he understands that Jesus is a teacher. It's a little obvious from the hundreds of people behind them. He probably had something important to say. Whether I agree with it or not, people like him. So, Master, Rabbi, Simon replied, We've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But, at your word, I'll let down the nets. So they go back out, and when they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, because I am a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those that were with him were amazed at the catch of fish they took and so were James and John Zebedee's sons who were Simon's partners don't be afraid Jesus told Simon from now on you will be catching people then they brought the boats to land left everything and followed him Jesus had a new way of dealing with the world he dealt with the world in a new way with the very power of the creator so where do we see the power of the creator in this account see in Luke, there's no account of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 through 7 is really popular, right? That's where we get, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, all that stuff. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And Luke doesn't include these words of God, a, a sermon. 
you'd think a sermon would be pretty awesome. I mean, we covet, speaking of Matt and I at least, we covet the sermons of great men that have gone before us. Spurgeon, Calvin, uh, Jones, C.S. Lewis. I mean, we just we covet those. If they have them, we're, we're on top of it. They release audio. We, we download it. I mean, we want to listen to these other guys preach. And Luke does not include in his detailed account the Sermon on the Mount. Why does he do that? And we find that he's really interested in what Jesus is doing. If you look at chapter 5 and you have a Bible that has red words, there's not a ton of red. It's what Jesus is doing. Luke focuses on what he did. Evidence of God's power associated with Christ's ministry. Luke's concern is not necessarily to give forth every word that Jesus said, but to demonstrate to the Gentiles who Jesus is. And by demonstrating who, he shows what he did. And what we have to see here is God's power associated and going through Christ's ministry. And so we see a very, very obvious evidence of the power of the Creator. But before we go into that, I want to first look at, at Simon Peter. Simon is, is thrown into the middle of this in a sort of weird way. If we're looking at a lot of the other Gospels, we don't expect him to talk about Simon. We expect him to talk about what he was teaching. But we look at Simon here in the middle, and it says, Jesus says to him, put out in the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, we've worked all, all night, hard, long, and caught nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. The first thing I really want us to look at is that we have to trust and obey as Peter did. Even when we don't understand, and even when we're utterly exhausted, we just have to do it. When Jesus is beckoning, when he is instructing us, when he is telling us what we need to do, we just need to trust and obey. There's a really great old hymn that says, Trust and obey, for there's no other. Yeah, that kind of fun stuff. Trust and obey. Just do it. Just do it. It's interesting, Calvin says regarding verse 5, I'm putting quotes on the screen this week, so it might be a little bit easier to follow, particularly with his older English type stuff, well, French or Latin. Um, Calvin says, but a particular instance of faith rendered to a single command of Christ would not have made Peter a Christian or given him a place among the sons of God if he had not been led on from his first act of submission to a full obedience. Listen to this, but as Peter yielded so readily to the command of Christ, whom he did not yet know to be a prophet or the Son of God, no apology can be offered for our disgraceful conduct if, while we call him Lord and King and Judge, we do not move a finger to perform our duty, to which we have ten times received his commands. Peter simply calls him Master, a respectful title for teacher. He has no affiliation with Christ at this point whatsoever. Nothing. Yet at his very command, he obeys immediately. And so what excuse do we have as Christians who claim the name of Christ as our Lord, as our King, as our Judge, if we don't move a finger when we've gotten instruction from him ten times over? We have no apology. There's, there's no excuse that we can offer for that. And so Simon immediately obeys. We're going to see an act like that again later, this immediate, immediate um, obedience. Let's take a cue after Simon Peter and just do it. So we look at then what is our main, our main task here? Who is Jesus? What is, what is he doing? What's interesting is that Jesus is, is still a man, obviously. He came here in his humanity as a great and 
important thing that Luke is trying to convey, the humanity of Christ. And we see that he knows much more than we know, right? He knows much more than we know. How do we, how do we see that in the text? Simon, master fisher, right? If you can't catch fish, you're not a fisher, right? You have to be able to catch fish, and they go all night long. The best time of day to catch fish was at night. And so they weren't home with their families. They were looked down upon because of that. They smelled like fish, particularly if they catch them. They have to clean nets all the time, which are slimy, they're gross. They're out deep in the water, particularly on the Sea of Galilee, which can storm up in an instant. I mean, these guys should know what they're doing, particularly if they're managing this water and doing this job. They should know what they're doing. So when they go back out, Peter's not thinking he knows something. He's not thinking, hmm, I lack the skills to do this. Peter's a good fisher. So when they catch a giant, giant load of fish, so much so that it's going to sink their boats, is it his skills that are in question? No. He did the same thing that he's been doing. They just went out in the deep water and did the same thing. Something different happened. What was it? It's not his skills. He's still the same fisher. It's not his partners. They're still the same fishermen. It's Jesus. Jesus has a control over creation. His power over creation. And we see that, what's his response? If it was simply skills, he'd be like, what did you do? What, what did you see? Did we do something different? No, but the sheer amount of fish triggers something in Simon's head. And he says, what? Go away from me, because I'm a sinful man, Lord. Go away from me. Peter's response in verse 8 is, I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful man. And what we find is that a heightened sense of God's presence brings about a heightened sense of our unworthiness, not a heightened sense of our God-likeness. A heightened sense of God's presence brings about a heightened sense of our unworthiness, not a heightened sense of our God-likeness. If we look through Scripture and we look at all the examples of people coming to terms with their uh, sin, particularly because of the presence of God. We look at Abraham, and he says, go away from me, I should be dust and ashes. We look at Sinai, the people beg them to go, beg Moses and the leaders to go away from Sinai, saying that surely we will die in the presence of the Lord. In fact, when God passed in front of Moses, he couldn't even look at him. Just the closeness of God's presence turned his face white and he glowed. Samson's parents, they assume that they are going to die having just seen an angel. Not even God, but an angel. They assume that they're going to die. Isaiah, he says, Woe is me, we are a people of unclean lips. We look even in Luke in chapter 1 with Zechariah. What was his response? Fear. He was terrified at the sight of an angel. Not, again, not even God, just an angel who he can see. He's terrified. The shepherds, how did they respond when the sky lit up with an angel? Terrified. A heightened sense of God's presence brings about a heightened sense of our unworthiness. It's not just that it's so magnificent and majestic. When we come into the presence of God, it's not just simply awe. It's fear and awe. It has to be both. If we come and say, oh, that is such a beautiful, beautiful sight, that's like us walking up to another created being, like a painting, and saying, wow, that is really beautiful. 
but we're on the same level. In fact, we're even better because we have the image of God. But when we look at God, it is an awesome sight as he is majestic, but it has to be fear also as we realize our unworthiness to even be in the presence of that majesty. It has to be both. Calvin describes it, he says it is customary with the Lord to strike down his own people and, as it were, to sink them into the grave. Why? That he may raise them up to life afterwards. The farther we descend into understanding our own unworthiness, the better we can understand the magnificence and the glory of God. Total depravity is a really, really, really discouraging doctrine, but it is one of my favorites because... The better that we see our sin, the more humbled we must be, and the better we can see the majesty and the holiness of God. Can you understand anything that's perfect? The closest that I can comprehend, maybe this is because of my, my background and design and whatnot, is, is a white blank piece of paper or a canvas that is, that is perfect. It is unblemished. It is untouched. It is ready for anything to happen to it. It is perfect. And that doesn't even remotely cover how holy God is. And so how can I better understand something that I just can't ever grasp? Infinite. Can you, I mean, how do we grasp infinity? Well, we have to try to make as big of a contrast as possible. What's the difference between zero and a million? What's the difference between being in debt a million versus having a million? You see how it begins to widen the gap and we know the negative side? The more we know our sin, the more we sing about, come ye sinners, the more we understand our place in this, the more we understand how far God had to come to even meet with us, the better we can understand him as he is. And so it is customary for the Lord to strike down his own people, for him to put us into the grave that he may raise them to life afterwards. What is Jesus' response to go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord? What is it? You're right peace. No. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Not only that, but then he goes on and gives him a mission. He says, from now on you'll be catching people. Now let's look at catching people, fishing for men. What does that mean? My version of fishing is this, all right? I have a catfish pole. It's not a medium. I don't know entirely what that means. It's a little longer. Um, I know that if I catch a bass with it, I can just kind of lift it out of the water. Um, and then I have like a little light um, fishing pole that's, I guess, meant for more sport, right? You can't just pull the fish out of the water. I have those two, all right? I've, this, is, this is my version of fishing. I put the catfish pole in the water with like shrimp or whatever on it. And I, and I lay it down, all right? And then I've got my, my little light pole. I throw it out. I ring it in a couple times, I throw it out, and then I'll sit down, and I'll do it a couple times, and then basically I fall asleep and listen to Jack Johnson. And uh, that's my version of fishing, all right? I sit and wait. Sit and wait. You think that works when we're fishing for men? How often does that work, sit and wait? My pole hasn't disappeared yet, okay? Um, so that's a good thing. He could just grab it and, you know, take it down into the lake, so... I haven't really caught anything that way, um, yet I continue to do it because it's relaxing. We can't just sit and wait when we're fishing for men. If we look at the fishing that's happening here in this old world, they're in a boat, and they go out into where the fish are, right? You're not just sitting on land saying, eh, it'll, it'll come up here. Evolution, right? 
I walk up here and jump into my, into my thing? No. You go out to where the fish are. You take these giant circular nets that often require two people, and you cast them out into the water, and then you pull ropes that then envelop the fish, and then you drag them and haul them back into the boat. Typically, you'll get one or two fish. Sometimes you get lucky and you get half a school of fish. But all day, casting, drawing in wet, heavy nets, casting, drawing in wet, heavy nets, sorting out a few fish, casting. It's work. It's hard work. It is an active, purposeful, intentional thing that we have to work together in. It takes effort and perseverance. And we see that this kind of character that is already instilled in Simon come back again in Pentecost, or after Pentecost, um, and then later even in Acts 10. You see this character that's already ingrained in Peter become um, a very important thing in his ministry. And so as we, are, as we are fishing for men, we have to be active. We have to go where they are. So the last thing I want to talk about in this section is that as we draw nearer to God, we are more mindful of our sins and his marvelous grace. God has loved us anyways and at great cost to himself. Fear not, Jesus told Simon, from now on you'll be catching people. I'm putting you on mission. I'm putting you on mission. I have grace on your life, even though you are a sinful man. It will come at great cost to myself. But we find his marvelous grace as we go on mission with him. And so they brought the boats to land. They left everything and followed him. Verse 12. But he was in one of the towns, all plural again. A man was there who had a serious skin disease all over him. He saw Jesus fell face down and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, he touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the disease left him. Then he ordered him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses prescribed for your cleansing as a testimony to them. But the news about him spread even more, and large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Yet he often withdrew into deserted places and prayed. So Jesus had a new way of dealing with the world, and now we find that he had a new way of dealing with uncleanness. You want to talk about revolutionary? If you're dealing with Jews and having a new way of dealing with uncleanness, this is crazy. This changes everything. A little background on this is clean versus unclean. What does that mean? But if you're dealing with something clean, you're dealing with, as the Levitical law will describe, something that is basically okay, all right? It's basically okay. So there, within that, is a subcategory of these clean things. If we take all of this stuff and it's clean, there's a small subcategory of the clean stuff that's been declared holy or sanctified, set apart for holy use. All right, so we have that. And what we find is you have things that are clean, and then if you look at the Levitical law, certain things could happen. And they're not even, they're not even bad. Um, I mean, it, it, if you were around a dead person, like if a family member dies, and you have to bury them, you're ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, all right? That's not a bad thing. It's not a sin. You just are unclean. You've been around something that was unclean, and you are then unclean. You have to be cleansed, and then you can be declared clean again. Uh, there's a ton of different ways this could happen. It could come from uh, menstruation. It could come from being around dead things. It can come from being sick. It can come from anything. And those aren't, sin- those aren't sinful things. You are just declared unclean. 
So don't take unclean as synonymous with sinner, okay? Unclean simply means I am not clean, and I am certainly not holy. I am certainly not sanctified, all right? So unclean things can be made clean again. What we find, in, and, and what this is important for, is that God is establishing for the Jews, um, the Israelites, way back um, in the Old Testament, that God is concerned about everything. He's concerned about everything. Everything has a state. And if we're going to be dealing with lost and saved people later in the New Testament, we have to have an understanding early that everything matters to God. Everything. It's not just people here that can be unclean. There's animals can be unclean. They're everything. Cups can be unclean. Cups can be holy. They're set apart, sanctified for holy use. The priest had to use. God is concerned about everything. There's nothing that's morally neutral. There's nothing in our life that is morally neutral. Everything has distinctions. Everything is involved in purity or unpure. God is concerned about everything, every aspect. Everything is either holy or it's common. It's either holy and set apart for holy use or it's common, clean or unclean. And so when we arrive at this story with that bit of background here, we find that every phase of life can be pleasing to God. Even in a hostile world, things that are unclean can be made clean. Everything can be pleasing. So what happens here with the man who has leprosy. Well, a, a leper had to be on the outside of camp. If you look at the Jewish law, uh, the leper can be not just what we would call leprosy, um, the arms falling off thing, but any really like contagious skin disease. Um, it is kind of a subcategory of stuff. If you had that, you must be outside of the camp. You cannot come to the temple. You are cast out. And so this leper should have been on the outside of camp. But as Jesus was in one of the towns, a man who had a serious skin disease all over him saw Jesus. So the leper should have never come running up to anybody. They're supposed to walk around covering their mouth, saying, unclean, unclean, yelling it at the top of their lungs so that people would stay away from them. There's never to approach somebody that is clean. And you are certainly never supposed to approach a rabbi. Nonetheless, this leper comes running up to Jesus, who is a rabbi. He falls on his face and makes a request and begs to God. It's not a question of if Jesus can, it's a question of will he. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What does Jesus do? See, if a leper reaches out and touches Jesus, Jesus will be declared ceremony. ceremony I cannot say that word today. I practice it too. It just doesn't come out. Will be declared unclean. A rabbi declared unclean, particularly with a skin disease in which he has to be cast out. So he just begs, all right? Leper comes all the way up, doesn't touch him, comes all the way up to him. Jesus doesn't just say something, what does he do? Reaching out his hand, he touched him. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the leper, saying, I am willing to be made clean. Jesus reaches out and touches the leper. And what we find is that his cleanness, Jesus' cleanliness, is more contagious than even the uncleanliness of leprosy. Jesus reaches out and touches this man where he's at. He reaches out and touches him and cleans him. He has made this thing that was unclean and certainly would perish clean now. Jesus is coming to deal with with us where we are at. So if we look and see that Jesus has a new way of dealing with the world, 
is a new way of dealing with uncleanness, a huge thing in the Jewish community. We find that even still, he wants to maintain the law. What does he give him as instructions? Don't tell anyone. That's weird. Jesus does that a lot. Don't tell anyone. Why, why don't you want me to tell anyone? I mean, there's a few different reasons, potentially. We call this messianic silence. Um, basically, I think what, what he's doing um, is Jesus is telling people, don't go talk about me, okay? Um, here's the problem. If you go out and tell everybody that I made you clean, how are people going to define me? The guy who makes lepers clean, well, that's not who I am only. That's not all I do. Also, heal the lame. I, I also make the blind see. I also give living water. I, I'm not just this type of rabbi. And so what, what he's letting him do is letting Jesus define the Messiah for what he really is versus what they would have him to be. We've already seen that in chapter 4. They want to define him for what they want him to be. Jesus is saying, no, I'm more than that. I'm going to define myself for who I am. And so he sends him to a religious leader, as the law of Moses would require. And lepers are being um, clean, and they have to go and then show the priest. The priest will examine them, make sure that they really are clean. They offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. They're declared clean. They go on their way. That's the, that's the Mosaic law. I think Jesus has a twofold purpose here. The first one is to go and be obedient to the law. All right? He's keeping the law perfectly for us. Remember? theme you're going to see all the way through. The second thing is, I think he's sending a message to religious leaders of the day. He's saying that lepers are being made clean. The Messiah is here. My very presence is changing time. We're going to see that again later as we move on. Last piece of this, verse 16, it seems like a little bit of an addition. He says, yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Again, we're talking about a character of Jesus. We're talking about a pattern of behavior of what he did. He often, multiple times, withdrew to deserted places, plural, and prayed. Not to pray, prayed. What's going on here is Jesus is taking time by himself. For all the stuff that he's doing as people are following him, crowding him, making demands on him, he still goes away and prays. We've got to be careful in narrative that we don't just wholesale adapt what Jesus is doing for our life. We talked about that modeling aspect on Tuesday and Wednesday. I think this is a time that we're allowed to model Jesus. And Jesus needed time to withdraw and pray alone. There's something to that. We're going to see a little bit more of that later. Next thing that we see is a new way of dealing with sin. In verses 17 through 26, Jesus has a new way of dealing with sin. I think Luke puts it in this order on purpose. Um, what do we find first is Jesus calls someone who no one would call in Simon. We see him cleanse and deal with really the Israelite version of, again, uncleanliness is not synonymous with sin. But it was the major concern of the Pharisees. The Pharisees weren't necessarily concerned about sin, if you will, per se. They were more concerned about ceremonial cleanliness, order, all that stuff. So he deals with that first, and then we see Jesus deal with what he was concerned about, sin. So we have the first mention of the Pharisees. There's about 6,000 Pharisees in Judea and Galilee. This is the first time we see them in Luke. 
Understand that Pharisees are not priests. Sadducees are priests. Pharisees are just men of the law. These are men who were um, concerned about keeping the law of Moses uh, and would even add to it to make sure that they would hit that break of the law before they would actually break the Mosaic law. So they would give themselves a buffer. So we have to fast once a week. Let's fast twice a week to make sure that we always get that one. You see what I mean? That's kind of what they were doing. And then there were teachers of the law. There were scribes. Uh, These are people that are all concerned about the law. So they're not priests, but they're people that are concerned about the law nonetheless and religion. So they represent more the religious aficionados, the crazy religious people of the day versus the priests. Um, So with that, the priests wanted to see what Jesus was doing. Um, When Matt, of course, we have the Internet, so we get to cheat a lot. Um, But when we hear of new religious awesomeness stuff that's popping up and going on, we're going to check it out, right? Some great new preacher, what's he preaching? And make sure that he's on target. Do our people need to be listening to them? We need to be listening to them. We're going to go check out what's happening. If there's a new church that's popping up around here, we're going to be checking out what's going on with them. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. They've been hearing about this Jesus who's been talking about the kingdom of God, something that they're trying to bring about by keeping the law. They're trying to force God's hand into bringing about kingdom. And then here Jesus is saying, I'm the kingdom What's he talking about? So they show up, and we find ourselves in verse 17. It says, On one of those days, plural again, while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there and had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and also from Jerusalem. And the Lord's power to heal was in him. Just then some men came, carrying on a mat a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the mat through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to think, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say get up and walk? But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins He told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God. And they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. Jesus has a new way of dealing with sin. So the Pharisees wanted to see what Jesus was going to do. He forgives sin. Jesus forgives sin. The paralytic comes in, he's laid down in front of Jesus, and he says, looking at him, because of your faith, also of the friends, your sin is forgiven. Who does Jesus think he is? How is he forgiving sin? I mean, John the Baptist was coming around beforehand, telling people that their sins would be forgiven, but he didn't say he was doing it. Certainly I tell you that your sins are forgiven. How? If you repent and believe in Jesus. And that's what John the Baptist was doing. He was saying, repent of your sins so that you can be forgiven. For one will come who will forgive them. So when I tell you, your sins are forgiven. It comes with, you must repent and believe in Jesus Christ. But Jesus doesn't say, you must repent and believe in me. He says, I have the power to forgive. I have the power to forgive. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, is there something that comes along with that? Yes. We'll see that in verse 32. 
But he says, I have the authority to forgive sins, and he does so. And so what we find here now is that sin, which is, in essence, rebellion against God, um, rejection, orphaning yourself, if you will, um, or just not living in the identity that God has made you, not living in the image of God and rejecting that from the maker, we have sin. And so the Pharisees say, who can forgive that? Who can forgive that rejection of God? If you reject me, who can forgive you of that rejection? Only me. So who can forgive rejection of God? Jesus. And he does. And they say, who can do that? And what's, what's interesting is the Pharisees were perfectly right, yet they were perfectly wrong. Who can forgive sin but Jesus? And they completely miss the fact that Jesus is the Messiah that they are trying to force God's hand in. doesn't even consider that Jesus might be the Messiah, that he is, in fact, God. Let's shift away from the Pharisees a little bit. Let's look at what happens to the actual paralytic. If we're dealing with sin and his sin particularly, let's talk about, let's talk about him. Seeing their faith, speaking of, about the friends, he says to the guy on the mat, your sins are forgiven you. Calvin says, and this should be up here, Calvin says that Christ appears here to promise to the paralytic something different from what he had requested. But as he intends to bestow health of body, he, brings, he begins, I'm sorry, with removing the cause of the disease and at the same time reminds the paralytic of the origin of his disease and of the manner in which he ought to arrange his prayers. As men usually do not consider that the afflictions which they endure are God's chastisements, they desire nothing more than some alleviation in the flesh. And in the meantime, feel no concern about their sins, just as if a sick man were to disregard his actual disease and to seek only relief from present pain. But the only way of obtaining deliverance from all evils is to have God reconciled to us. He goes on to say, Thus it appears that this is a frequent and ordinary way of speaking in the Scriptures, to promise the pardon of sins. When the mitigation of punishments is sought, it is proper to attend to this order in our prayers. When the feeling of affliction reminds us of our sins, let us first of all be careful to obtain pardon for those sins, that when God is reconciled to us, he may withdraw his hand from punishing. The paralytic certainly just wanted to be able to walk. He probably didn't really have his sins on the forefront of his mind. What if our sins are causing God to then chastise us? Because if you are a believer today, it says that God disciplines those he loves. He's certainly not going to discipline us when we're doing things right. My dad never disciplined me when I was doing things right. He disciplined me when I did something wrong because he loved me. The Father disciplines those that he loves. So not every time are things that are bad happening to us a direct result of our sin. It could be a result of somebody else's sin, particularly when we're living in community. But it can be the hand of God chastising us, disciplining us because of our sin. And it's going to make us really uncomfortable. And for those of you with a comfort idol like I have, we're going to want those pains removed. We're going to want the Vicodin just to take away the pain and completely not really deal with the disease. We have to deal with the sin first. Calvin's saying that like a sick man were to disregard his disease and only seek relief from present pain, the only way that we can obtain deliverance from all evil is to have God reconciled to us. And how do we become reconciled to God? We repent of our sins and we're forgiven of those sins first, and then the pain can be taken 
away because we are in right fellowship with God. And so what we find here is that we need to know yourself or ourselves to be an object of God's mercy. Know yourself to be an object of God's mercy. We saw mercy earlier with Simon. Do not be afraid. We saw mercy earlier with the leper. He reaches out and touches him. You see mercy here, friend. Your sins are forgiven you. Know yourself to be an object of God's mercy. Colossians reminds us that we were alienated from God, objects of wrath. Now we've been made friend. We're a family. Spurgeon has more to say on this. Um, he says, I anxiously desire, this is a little bit long, but I want you to think about how this would look here, okay? This is Spurgeon addressing his church. He says, I anxiously desire to see in this church little bands of men and women bound to each other by zealous love to souls. I would have you say to one another, this is a case in which we feel a common interest. We will pledge each other to pray for this person. We will unitedly seek his salvation. Many will say that the plan is admirable, but they will leave it to others to carry it out. Remember that the four persons who join in such a labor of love ought all of them to be filled with intense affection to the person whose salvation they seek. He's speaking of the four friends that came and brought the paralytic. There must be men who will not shrink because of difficulty, who will put forth their whole strength to shoulder the, burden, the beloved burden, and will persevere until they succeed. They need to be strong, for the burden is heavy. They need to be resolute, for the work will try their faith. They need to be prayerful, for otherwise they labor in vain. They must be believing, or they will be utterly useless. Jesus saw their faith and therefore accepted their service. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. If we want to have souls saved, we must not be too squeamish and delicate about conventionalities, rules, and proprieties. For the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence. We must make up our minds to this. Smash or crash, everything shall go to pieces which stands between the soul and its God. It matters not what the tiles are to be torn off, what plaster is to be digged up, or what boards are to be torn away, or what labor or trouble or expense we may be at. The soul is too precious for us to stand upon niceties. If by any means we may save some is our policy, skin for skin, yea, all that we have is nothing comparable to a man's soul. When four true hearts are set upon the spiritual good of a sinner, their holy hunger will break through stone walls or house roofs. The concern for us here is twofold. One, see yourself as an object of the mercy of God. I mean, Jesus repeatedly reaches out. Repeatedly. Simon, leper, paralytic. See that. But then have an urgency. Have an urgency for the lost. Have an urgency for the lost that would push you to do this. You have a sick friend. You have three buddies. You three buddies take him to Jesus. You get there, you see that there's no way to get in the house. So you, very carefully, bearing this burden 
keeping him level so that he doesn't fall off and further injure himself. Take him up the side stairs of the house up to the roof. You get up to the roof, and you see that there's no access door. We've got to get him down there. We hear that Jesus will, will do this stuff, but then he just he disappears. We've got to get him down there. And so you begin to remove the hard earth that's been packed down on top. As soon as you get through that clay and hard earth, you find yourself at the level of reeds. And you begin to pull back these hard, stuck reeds that would support the roof. All wild dust is falling down up in your nails. You don't have any tools because you thought you'd just be able to walk in. And finally, you clear enough space that your friend can get in because you're not just going to drop him in a hole. You've got to level him and keep him safe. You finally drop him down in front. Almost dust is everywhere. People are angry with you. And what's your mission? Your mission is that you care about that person. You just need to get them there. Who in your life are you just getting them there? He had a new way of dealing with sin. It wasn't just sin. He had a new way of dealing with sinners. Jesus had a new way of dealing with sinners. Verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him, Jesus, at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus replies to them, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's a new way of dealing with sinners. He spends time with sinners. He didn't try to avoid them. And if you're saying, well, what makes a tax collector a sinner? Well, tax collectors here are much worse than any auditor today. You would be happy to have an auditor walk into your house rather than a tax collector walk into your house. The Internal Revenue Service may be a pain, but they are far better than these tax collectors. These tax collectors were collaborators of the Gentiles, and they basically are um, assisting the occupation of the Holy Land. And what's, what's worse about these guys is these aren't Gentiles. Matthew is not a Gentile. Levi is not a Gentile. He's a Jew. And for a Jew to be a co-conspirator with the Romans who have moved in are taking money from Jews and further enforcing the government of the Romans and the occupation of the Holy Land makes him the lowest of the low. Because these tax collectors were free. They had to collect what was required to them by their governor. They could collect as much more as they want. And we see that Levi's pretty well off. He threw a grand banquet. He invited a lot of friends. This guy skimmed a lot off the top. What I find interesting is that they're always called tax collectors and what? Sinners. It's like tax collectors, its own level of hell. I mean, you have, right, Moses or the law, the prophets and the writings, right? That's how the Hebrews would explain it. It's three different levels of importance. We have tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors are their own special level of hell. 
they're not well thought of. Yet Jesus is calling one to follow him and then eats with them. The eating and drinking that Jesus did with them, not just Levi, but all the other friends that he brought, implies his approval. This is why, and I completely understand my parents' reasoning in this, particularly if they listen to this. I love you guys. Um, my parents wouldn't want us, me and my brother, to go drinking with people because we would be seen at the bar and be assumed to get drunk and do what everybody else there was doing, right? So it would affect my reputation. Honorable, understandable. What needs to happen here? What are we concerned about? Are we concerned about our holiness or our reputations? Because same thing with, I mean, tattoos. We can get thrown in with the wrong crowd, assume these things about us. If you walked by here, you would assume Jesus is what? As bad as the tax collectors and sinners. And that was the problem that the Pharisees had. Why are you approving what they're doing? It's incredibly, incredibly awesome. This is one of my favorite responses in Scripture. He says this. He says, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. What is he doing there? This ambiguous answer forces the listener, us and the Pharisees, to do something. Who are we aligning ourselves with? Am I sick or am I healthy? Is he talking to me? And we have to make the decision, who are we? Where do we fit into this? The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. He could have just said, look, I'm not approving what they're doing. I'm just, I need to spend time with them. I came to save them. He could have said that. What did he say? He forces us into the story. Across 2,000 years, he says, Rusty, today we'll need to find out who is he. Because I guarantee you when he said the healthy don't need a doctor but the sick do, the Pharisees are like, oh, awesome. Okay, I, I get it. Yeah, we don't need you. I'm good. I'm clean. I'm healthy. Thank you. It's the sinners. Yeah, you need to save them. And we very quickly find ourselves being self-righteous in it. I'm perfectly fine, Jesus. I understand your mission now. Okay, you came for them. I get it. You're that kind of rabbi. You're going you're gonna to spend time with them. That's cool. We'll keep doing what we're doing, keeping the law. We're, we're, we're healthy. We're doing it right. But what's Jesus saying? What is Jesus saying? The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I'm spending time with them because they need me. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And here's where we find the key word, to repentance. To repentance. I've come to call sinners to repentance. He is not approving what they're doing, but he's spending time with them in order to call them to Repentance. So the implication for us is that we have to fight self-righteousness. We have to bring our friends to Jesus like Levi. We need to spend time with lost people. Jesus tells Levi to follow me, so he gets up, leaves everything behind, and follows him immediately. His first act is to host a banquet for Jesus, bringing all his friends together so that they can know Jesus. And he spends time with all these lost people. And this is something that's incredibly hard for me to do in my position. I am just not around lost people. And I am trying to repent of that and model that better. Um, but it's really hard when I sit with him for 50 hours a week. <laughs> and he's saved, I'm pretty sure. All right? It's just, it's really hard. You know, and I, it takes extra effort to then foster the relationships that I can and do have. 
I'm trying to uh, model that better going forward. But I mean, for you guys, I mean, in your secular jobs, I envy you. You know, around people, I, I am in great remorse for the days I had in high school. I did not live this out when I was absolutely around them every day. Spend time with lost people. Matt and I are trying to review some things that we do here at the church in order to enable you um, to spend more time with lost people, to find ways for us to be able to equip you and make sure that you have the time you need to spend time with lost people. But we have to be intentional about it. And for us, the danger of over-programming always has been that we consume all your time. We don't want you to spend all your Jesus time at church. We don't have a ton of programs here. We have Sunday and we have home gathering. That's it. We don't have Awanas. We don't have youth group. We don't have all these other things. We want you to spend intentional time with lost people. And if we're sucking up all your free time, you can't do that. We need to have an urgency to spend time with the lost and dying. And if we had an urgency and a compassion for the souls of the lost and dying, like Spurgeon was saying, we would be moving. And we would be moving with friends. We would be moving together in groups and in couples to go after the souls of these people, to fish for men, not just sit and wait. Finally, he had a new way of dealing with religion. New way of dealing with religion. Verse 33. And they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same. But yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? For the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. And we see the first really small parable of Jesus in Luke. It says, no one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. But new wine should be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking the old wine wants a new because he says the old is better. Um, new way of dealing with religion. What is, I hate talking about the Pharisees, they're annoying. Um, it's important for us to look at the Pharisees, the early church to use Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees in order to deal with attacks from outside the church and how they do what they do. So in the early church dealing with Rome, how do we deal with Gentiles? How do we deal with sinners? How do we deal with fasting? How do we deal with ritual law? When we're dealing with the zealots from Judaism, uh, the Judaizers, how do we deal with them? How did Jesus deal with the Pharisees? Because that is the example that we then use for all those different groups. And so this here is for us. How do we deal with fasting? How do we deal with ceremonial fasting in the law of Moses? And the Pharisees come to them, to Jesus this time, not to his disciples, and say, John's disciples, the guy who talks about you, the guy who like led the way for this little revolution you're doing, his, his disciples fast. Your disciples eat and drink all the time. What's going on? Why aren't they fasting? They're breaking the law of Moses. He says to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? It's like coming to my wedding, and I'm the only one who gets to eat. You guys just chill. I'm going to eat this awesome steak and, uh, and then go on my honeymoon. Peace. No, you don't. It's a celebration, right? And what Jesus is saying in multiple ways, he's calling himself the groom. And the groom is, this is not the first time 
that we see this idea of a bridegroom coming for the church or the Israelites. He's calling himself the groom, and he's saying, you need to celebrate while I'm here. After I'm gone, then you can fast. There will be times to fast. We need to be fasting. The church in Acts fasted. But that's because Jesus is gone. While he's here, they're going to party. They're going to celebrate. Messiah is here. It's time to celebrate. Jesus took this opportunity to center religion on himself. Fasting was for religious purposes. The Pharisees were religious people. Jesus is saying, I am religion. I am religion. And different times call for different actions. Time itself has been affected by my arrival. The fact that I am here changes things. It is time to celebrate. And different actions have to come about. So he gets into his parable and he says, no one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Basically, really quickly, a lot of people use this for things that they shouldn't. Um, His point here, if you take a new garment, tear off a patch and put it on an old one, the first time that it gets washed, that patch is going to shrink and it's going to tear all of the patch that you're trying to cover. Make sense? All this stuff, like if I took this, tore a hole, this has been washed and stretched and shrunk, right? It's already done changing. If I take a new shirt and I cover that hole the first time I wash it, it will shrink and then pull all of this together and tear it. It will ruin it and it won't match. This is like, I wash this in hot water and you're not supposed to do that. Um, Put a new black one on there, not going to match, right? The next one, that's all, that's what he's saying. Different times, different actions. Um, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Same deal with stretching. If you put new wine into an old wineskin, it's going to inflate and burst. It will be ruined, both the wine and the skin. New wine should be put into fresh wine skins. Um, most of the commentators that I've read all say that verse 39 is kind of a joke. Um, he's kind of messing with them at this point. No one after drinking old wine wants new because he says the old is better. This is akin to me getting my first shot of espresso in Costa Rica. Um, it has ruined all espresso for me in America. Same thing. I don't really want to drink that when I've had the good stuff. Make sense? That makes me a coffee snob. I get it. Um, That's what he's saying here. He thinks it's kind of a joke. Most of them do. Um, So Luke kind of ends this with saying, the old is better. Well, the Pharisees might want that too. They think that the old is better. It's not. Jesus is centering religion on himself. And so what is the point then? The point of what Jesus is saying is that different times call for different measures. While I'm here, we're going to celebrate. I'm what matters. Adam has already come. New creation is here. I'm what matters. And so he centers religion on himself. And basically what we want to end with is that knowing God is the point of religion. Knowing God is the point of religion. Grow in our knowledge of him, relationship with him. Grow in that. Now our our culture is so full of disdain for religious people. It's because the religious people look like the Pharisees. They don't look like this. If religious people looked like knowing God is the point and not just whatever their agenda is, I think it might change something. The point is to know God, to grow in our knowledge of Him, to grow in our relationship with Him. Your assignment for Renovate Us was to write a love letter and seal it and not let them read it to your spouse, or if you're single, to write about what you would commit to and what you think 
marriage will be like and such. And then we're going to take it today. And so if I have a letter from my wife here, and I haven't read it, what would my reaction be to receiving this? Probably tear it open and, and read it. And probably memorize parts of it and read it a couple times. I still have letters that she's written me from when we were dating. So cards, still have text messages, I still have emails, I have all that. And I, I like to read that stuff. It's important to me. What happens if I don't read it? You see, when I receive this, I, I want to read it. I have a great desire to read it. In fact, since it's from her, and no offense, not one of you guys, I feel like I have a need, like a deep need to read it. If I don't read it, I'm doing something wrong. It's more than just a desire. It's a, a deep, heartfelt need to read it. We have a love letter from God, not to get too cliche, but this is how we know God. I can know more about my wife by reading her letter and how she feels about me, or how she expresses herself to me. And God has done that. He has revealed himself here just in his actions, but even more in saying who I am. This is my mission. I must proclaim the good news. We see that he wants us to celebrate with him while he's here and fast, while he's away in anticipation of his coming back. But the question is, how are you knowing God? Does this mean you need to read? Yes. Yes. I know you don't like reading. I know I do too much. Um, we need to read. We have to. That is how he's revealed himself to us. If he gave us another option, we could do that. We need to read and know God. And, and here's the question. It's not simply who is Jesus, but how do you regard Jesus? I think as you grow in faith, it begins with Jesus being a ticket, right? It's a ticket out of hell. I'm going to go to heaven and enjoy life forever. I mean, he, that's a perk. Certainly, he, we see calls for that. That's okay. But as we grow in maturity in our faith, I think Jesus ultimately moves from a ticket to heaven to the destination itself. For me, I am realizing this in ever-increasing measures. Uh, the more I know about Jesus, the more I just want to see him. I just do. It, I, don't, I think my daughter has helped with this. Um, just being able to see her means a ton. It's awesome to think about her, to hear stories about what she does while I'm at work, um, you know, to hear her laugh, all that stuff. It, it's awesome. It really is. But just to see her changes things. To see my wife when I come home, it's different. Just to be able to see her. It's not an issue of faith. I know she'll be there. I know she loves me. I know, I know all that. I know this. I know it. But to be able to see him as he is, and we will see him face to face, that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I don't have to burn. Yay. <laughs> I'm grateful for that sacrifice. And I, and I discover that the more I understand how sinful I am. But the more that Jesus reveals himself to me, the more I see my need for a Savior, and the more I'm grateful for and want to see that Savior. So the question is, how do you regard Jesus? Are you going to read the love letter that he gave you? I mean, try putting that letter that your spouse gives you on your nightstand and not touching it for a week. And feel the urgency and the desire within to read this from another, no offense, mortal. And when I have the word of God, who wants to reveal himself to me as he is? How do you regard Jesus? He is a revolutionary. He's come to change everything. 
And if we're not seeking him for who he is, then we're missing the entire point of what he did. And you could ignore a revolution and get left behind in the dust, but it's going to continue on no matter what. Let's go ahead and pray. And we'll be dismissed today. Heavenly Father, God, we love you so much, and we are so thankful for your revelation of you. Father, as we cling to your word, Father, we understand that these are the very things that you came here to do. Father, this is a perfect revelation of who you are, what you are, and Father, as you intend for us to see you. It's not up for us to try to figure it out. Father, you have shown us who you are. God, I long for the day that I'll be able to see you face to face. Father, that I can know my Savior as he is. Father, we're so thankful for what you're doing here at Renovation. Father, as I look forward to that meeting one day, Father, I ask that you renew an urgency in my life for the lost. That we don't just see them as not knowing you, which for some reason doesn't seem to grasp us in our Facebook and online world. But Father, that they're dying. They are dying and going to hell. They're lost, and they will be without you for eternity. You are the most precious gift that we have, and we withhold that from them just from our lack of desire. Father, renew an urgency in our hearts. We love you and we thank you for all that you're doing. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.